Who is included in your Christian family? Shively Smith is Assistant Professor of New Testament at Wesley Theological Seminary. In this episode, we talk about her book, Strangers to Family, Diaspora and First Peter's Invention of God's Household. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Shively, thank you so much for talking with me today. Uh-huh. Thank you for having me. You recently wrote, wrote Strangers to Family, Diaspora and First Peter's Invention of God's Household. Why did this need to be written? Yeah, this was a really interesting um, text to work on uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, and first, really, the origin of it um, being one in which um, started at my dissertation level of my work uh, when I was studying uh, fun texts like the Daniel Court Tales and um, thinking about what it means for uh, faithful people to be writing literature mm-hmm. um, um, from their experiences, anticipating a future, imagining um, their work and location in the world. Uh, and I found myself really getting interested in how uh, we create kinship. Um, we create uh, sort of cultures and ways of being together. Uh, and uh, First Peter ended up drawing me to it because it has all this really interesting language of not just kinship, but what it means to be in kinship with people located elsewhere mm-hmm. and to see each other even through these sort of regional and territorial uh, markers of identity as brothers and sisters who don't just have, who are not just sharing sympathy, but real empathy um, with you because they, even in their location, are experiencing challenges um, from the periphery uh, to see that as part of um, our uh, Christian heritage. Um, in In the New Testament, I thought, I think at this stage in time, it's really powerful. Can you give some examples? What were some of those mm-hmm. things that hooked you? Yeah. Or that just resonated like all the way down? Yeah. So probably what hooked me was not the way the text resonated with me, but was actually my resistance. Yeah. I mean, so initially I was really interested in um, notions of diaspora, notions of kinships of people that are st- that are dispersed across the world, located elsewhere, uh, and yet there's a connection there, a shared identity there. Uh, First Peter was not the place I wanted to play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. Initially, I was certain that I was going to do work in um, the Book of Acts. Okay. And I thought, the Book of Acts is narrative. You get to see this church who shares all things in common, spreading out into the world. I mean, this is... Languages. The languages and, yeah, and yeah. people. And, you know, and Jesus is saying in Acts 1-8, go into the world and it's going to be spread through Samaria and Judea. I mean, you're getting all of this, this dispersion mm-hmm. um, in mass as part of the, the birth of the church. Uh, and I just knew that's where I was going to play. Uh, and then I got to First Peter after doing this real read, this quick sort of rereading of the entire New Testament to make sure that's where I wanted to land. And I ended up in First Peter where right from right at the beginning, you're told that these are the elect ones and they're strangers of the diaspora. And you're being reminded about how you're strangers in the world. Um, you do not c- conduct yourself there, aliens and strangers and foreigners and um, 
And I was like, wow, this has all the language Mm -hmm. that I want to play with. And then it also has the language that I don't want to play with. What's the language you don't want to play with? Right. So also, as, you know, uh, a Southern African-American female from the South, um, my origins being there, you know, you have the household code. So you have the codes of, you know, uh, slaves submit to your masters and wives submit to your husbands. I mean, all of these really uh, this difficult language that has had a very particular, uh, particularly terrifying and dangerous interpretive history, particularly sort of in American conversations uh, with the suffrage movement and the uh, pro-slavery and anti-slavery debates coming out of uh, the 19th century. I mean, we have text such as um, the 1860 uh, essay called Cotton is King, pro-slavery arguments, where you see them wielding First Peter as a mm-hmm. primary scriptural basis for their argument of um, not just enslaving um, other people, but also naming those people as inferior and not human. Uh, and so there's a way in which First uh, Peter is a scary text, um, was a very scary text for me, a very disturbing text from me because of its history, mm-hmm. uh, which is all the more reason why I felt I needed to see if I could give it a fresh hearing. Uh, And that's probably what ignited me. I said, is there a way to peel back the layers of all of this very violent sort of interpretation and try to hear if that is really what First Peter had on the radar uh, when he's wielding this language of elect ones and brothers and sisters in the world suffering with you, when he's talking about being prepared with a defense speech, when he's calling them um, a diaspora people of God. God, um, children of God. Uh, And so the challenge of stepping away from some of the traditional interpretations and uses of 1 Peter to hear a fresh idea or perspective of kinship is what drew me into the text. Yeah. So as you started to research and peel back some of those layers, Mm -hmm. um, what what surprises did you find? I assume that there were surprises to be found. There were absolutely surprises to be found. Um, there were quite a few. Uh, no, probably the first one of them uh, would be um, recognizing where First Peter, the letter of First Peter, is in sort of the use and interpretation and defining. Um, uh, defining work of diaspora. So, um, First Peter uh, is Can you quick to find diaspora. Yes, Sorry, yeah, no worries. So, diaspora simply means a scattering throughout or dispersion. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just the hard literal meaning of yeah. it. What it means conceptually is we're talking about uh, people that have been scattered um, regionally or cross regionally, and um, as an actual sort of concept, it is primarily a sort of condition, a state, um, um, a sort of consciousness about that includes issues of space and place and um, um, etiquette and issues of mannerisms and sort of this identity, cultural, uh, communal myth that transcends uh, sort of regional markers, right, uh, in many ways. So it's, th- it's this larger functioning that I'm most interested in. How does it shape diaspora as a notion? How does it shape cultural identities? Yeah. 
How does it bring people that are separated from each other uh, uh, together? Is there a way in which you can bring them together as a common group, even across their diversity? Yeah. Yeah. So sorry. Yeah, that no was a little worries. tangent to no just worries. unpack what we mean when we say yeah. that word. So yeah. as you were peeling back the layers. Yeah. So one of the diamond, one of the discoveries that I made about uh, First Peter is um, in its very use of diaspora. So it uses diaspora as a noun. Um, and uh, diaspora, um, the author of First Peter is not the first person to use this term, this okay. Greek term, right? And so it actually has a, a beginning point. So diaspora as a thing, as a noun, shows up for the first time in um, our in, in the literary history within the Septuagint. So within um, uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures is the first time we get this noun form diaspora as a thing. It only shows up 12 times in the Septuagint. And this is important because we have um, the verb to be dispersed, Mm -hmm. to be scattered, is located um, elsewhere in the world. So we see it in um, some of the Greek writers, Herodotus and Sophocles, and they're using the language of to be dispersed, the verb. Um, when they're fundamentally talking about um, the spreading of Greek culture across the okay, world, sure. okay? But for it to be a noun, a condition, a state, it is Hellenistic Judaism that crafts and carves and names, creates this noun, diaspora. And when it shows up in the Septuagint, um, it fundamentally is um, talking a theological category. It's a theological rationale for why the Jews are no longer in the land. They are spread across the world, right? And so and when when was it first used? Uh huh. So uh, it's just it's showing up across in the Septuagint itself um, in various places. So we see it sort of in Deuteronomy. In my book, I lay out in the first few pages these sort of references in different ways, um, different locations. But its meaning is consistent when it gets used here. It fundamentally is a punitive conceptual category that means uh, a theological rationale for why um, Jews are not in the land. And they say it's because, you know, we have been dispersed because of faithlessness. Right. Faithlessness to God. God has dispersed us into the land and God will restore us to the land. So the movement um, that it pictures, that it names, that it describes is really a movement of a people in a land that gets dispersed um, um, from their original homeland into the world. And they anticipate this sort of fateful return to the land. Mm -hmm. Um, First, Peter represents a sort of. A movement towards that, um, a movement away from or reinventing of that term. So the book not only talks about First Peter, I also look at how diaspora imagery and language is showing up in other places. So in the Daniel Court Tales, I go back to it and I talk about how diaspora there, even though the term doesn't get used, you get the sort of narrative uh, portrayal of diaspora as a dispersion from the land of Jerusalem because the Jews were not faithful to God. You kind of get this in the first Daniel court tale and it continues. And then you end up seeing in these other Hellenistic Jewish texts where it begins to get fiddled with a little bit. Um, and the one that's quite interesting right before we get to first Peter is actually Philo. So this term diaspora as a noun shows up in this 
early Alexandrian Jewish philosopher in the um, first century. And what Philo does as an interpreter is he imports the term into the story of Babel. That is not where that term shows up in um, the Septuagint in its 12 instances. It's showing up in the Maccabees. It's showing up in the Deuteronomy. It's not showing up in the story of Babel. And Philo does that because he ends up um, not wanting to say that the Jews are a diaspora people. He says that all of humanity is a diaspora people that are seeking to journey back to God. So, I mean, this you get this range, which is a huge shift from this original way in which it's showing up in the Septuagint. And then you get Philo at the beginning of the first century, and he's cast it into much a, a wider conception that isn't necessarily punitive or bad. It's just the way in which he's envisioning the world cosmologically, existentially, humanity. So it's a very interesting piece. When we get to First Peter, who is now at the latter part of the first century, it now is of a specifically Christian term mm-hmm. that is not punitive at all. Diaspora is reward. This is the reward of our faith. The reward of our faith is that we are from the beginning a dispersed and diverse people. So First Peter is uh, addressed to Galatians and Cappadocia and and uh, and people from Pontus and Asia. I mean, you get this real range of territorial and regional identities that First Peter doesn't try to resolve or create, but affirms as all being a part of a dispersed and diverse people. And so, what First Peter does is diaspora is not a state that we are trying to remedy. Mm-hmm. Diaspora and diversity go together as the beginning point of the Christian identity, and we are all. Journeying together to heaven, to Christ. To, still with an expectation to, of a homecoming. Still with an expectation of a homecoming of all of these Christian peoples together. And with it is the recognition that this journeying toward this homecoming, this homecoming journey that we're taking is actually a very difficult one. Yeah. So, yeah. So it flips a bit, though, that diaspora isn't something to be lamented. Right. So much as it is a... Is a clarion call for this acceptance and embrace of our diversity and dispersion as a marker of our faith, that our faith is big enough to hold, Mm -hmm. to call all of us into community together. Um, And I think it's a difficult clarion call. I mean, the the sticking point with 1 Peter that is significant, I think, that I'm trying to get across in the book is that the reason why 1 Peter is using this sort of this recast, redefined notion of diaspora is to really provide uh, an anchor for these communities of people that are fundamentally targets of real violence and ostracism and attack. So First Peter, uh, when you talk about something that I discovered, I discovered that all that First Peter is primarily located on the edges of society. The, the people that the letter is talking about, written from, written to, are not people who are at the center of a society that they are not the powers, they're not the governors, they're not the master class and the property owners. These are the people that fundamentally sit as targets. Mm of misuse power, targets of the center wanting to maintain, um, maybe even flaunt 
their power at the expense of others. And so First Peter uses diaspora to encourage the believers in the church that even though they may be targets um, for their sort of difference, um, mm-hmm. that um, there is something good in this faith. There's something good about this diversity. There's something good about this difference. There's something good about this dispersion of people. Um, and that, and what's good is that in, in that diversity, there is kinship. There is hospitality. There is acceptance. There is an affirmation of our fundamental identity as children of God, not children of the empire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you look around you at the church mm-hmm. and you think about diaspora as part of someone's identity, mm-hmm. do you see um, do you see this playing out right now? Yeah. Um, either people experiencing that um, outright, or do you think you just maybe see it inadvertently happening where mm-hmm. people kind of have this identity without even recognizing it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Are there connections like that? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the first connections is uh, the way in which First Peter sees the faith um, that one of the validations of the this Christian community and Christian identity is the fact that uh, we begin as a body in diversity and dispersion, which means that sometimes it's a real challenge to some of us in the church and in these sort of Christian-based institutions who um, now we're coming up with missions and objectives to diversify mm-hmm. our communities. Uh, when from the perspective of First Peter, um, the Christian identity and community begins in diversity. It's not... Um, an objective that now we're going to put on the radar to try to achieve it is mm-hmm. it actually should be the first starting point um, huh. that defines our identity as Christian. And so, in some ways, um, the difficulties that we're having is because, from the perspective of First Peter, we may not have started correctly the mm-hmm. first at the beginning. The beginning, the foundation point um, of our Christian identity um, didn't start with this real idea of diaspora and diversity, and now we're having to um, backtrack to it. Um, And so some of the difficulties there then become, now we've got to think about what it means to be hospitable to strangers. And we have to recognize uh, and that strangers are not people out there, um, um, but they are people in here. They are people that are a part of our kinship, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Whereas 1 Peter um, starts and assumes that um, when it starts talking about issues of hospitality. I think those that's one of the difficulties. The other difficulty, particularly particularly when we're thinking about First Peter, is the house the the point of the household codes. Mm-hmm. So the point of the household codes in First Peter is not to, as uh, one pro-slavery minister said in uh, an essay in um, the 19th century, to reflect the uh, cause of Christ, God's order. That was not the point of the household codes. First Peter was not putting that forward as this is the vision of the Christian community. First Peter was putting that forward as this is the strategy for a vulnerable target group uh, uh, to survive mm-hmm. in a world that sees them as expendable, right? Mm-hmm. And so what's interesting is First Peter comes 
um, right at the end of the first century, moving into the second, right before we get the rise of early Christian martyrology. So, all you know, we start getting these fascinating stories of people dying for uh, the work of Christ and dying as Christ. First Peter never makes that claim. First Peter says that that suffering, that kind of death was reserved for Christ. Christ is the one who suffered and died. Peter does not, the author of this letter does not want the people to die. To somehow embody that. Yeah, yeah, to embody that and to do that over again. Mm -hmm. Christ has already done that suffering. What you have to do in this stage um, is to navigate and survive that where we see the vision of the Christian community showing up in First Peter is in First Peter three eight when as soon as um, the writer comes off of the household codes finishes the household codes um, he turns inward to the entire community and says now love one another. Extend brotherly and sisterly hospitality and love to each other. Have sympathy and empathy with one another, right? Do not repay abuse for abuse. And he's not talking about how we treat people out there. He's talking about how the community, when we come together, when we identify and name our diversity and dispersion, but yet name that we are Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, how we are to treat each other. Yeah. Wow. Mm So for for folks who feel that they've read First Peter and they feel bumped around by it, yeah. bumped and bruised by it, yeah. which I think a lot of people do, a mm-hmm. lot of Christians do, um, what would you say to those folks? I would first affirm that the bumps and bruises are real and legitimate. As I said, I mean, this um, history of interpretation of this letter uh, in this country is, um, it it is there. Um, The difficulties, the ways in which it has been used uh, against um, some of the most vulnerable, uh, some of the most um, exploited uh, in our society, rather than as a way to uh, buttress them, to give them strategies for survival, is real. Is 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 a reality. Um, but I want to say that just because it's a reality doesn't make it correct. A correct use of it. Um, that First Peter was not a text intended to go to be used and to serve the ends of the most powerful and the most uh, uh, the most dominating and those with um, all the resources and lots of options. It wasn't intended to be used for the norm. And in that side, it, it would almost become a weapon. It would become be a weapon used against yeah, groups of people. That in fact the. Um, the good news of this text, to me, is the fact that it it becomes a witness to the fact that um, the gospel message cares about um, the life and well-being of those on the edges of our communities. Mm-hmm. Um, that it cares about and is trying to think through um, faithfully and present sort of faithful presentations of what it means to navigate uh, this world that is really good at ignoring certain bodies and histories and locations and affirming others. And then it calls us to continue that work. Mm-hmm. So as you look at uh, the landscape of the church, we'll just mm-hmm. say in North America, but mm-hmm. when we're talking diaspora, we could go, you know, yeah, global wrong. church. But um, what kind of hope do you have? I uh 
local and locally and globally, I think the hope that I get from First Peter is that the truth of our faith is that our faith is diverse, that I am a part of uh, uh, of a community that is full of diverse communities and language and culture and bodies. And I am so excited to know that um, across the world, I actually do have, bro- according to First Peter, we have brothers and sisters in Christ um, across the world who are in prayer with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, who are journeying with this. And so uh, I get the kind of hope that says yes. Um, as Christians, as local churches, local pastors, local lay leaders, as um, people in our local context, believers in our local context, we are reminded that we are a part of a great cloud of witnesses, both past and present, and that our task is to stay mindful of that and is to speak from that global and diverse context and back to it. And this was already being celebrated in the first century. This was being celebrated within the first 50 and 70 years of our faith. And I'm hoping that now with, you know, a couple of thousand years under our belt, we can continue to celebrate and do the thinking and work that um, cultivates it, protects it, uh, and continues to go after it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So what's the question I'm forgetting to ask? What's the question you're, pro- you're forgetting to ask? Do I like First Peter now? Do you like First Peter now? That's a great question. Yes. You still you I, like I First think, Peter? I, I think uh, the initial You've resist- made the shift. I've made the shift. <laughs> so the resistance I had to it before, it now calls me back, calls me to um, a spe- space of reflection, uh, but also lament that as much as I see Um, The hope in it, the history of how it's been used always serves as a cautionary uh, uh, detail for me about how interpretation can turn violent, can turn hurtful. uh, And I appreciate that tension. Yeah. Yeah. And it feels like a word for for all those of us who read scripture. Yeah. Yeah. As as the danger of, you know, trying to apply it to our own our own ends, yeah. um, and is it, in fact, the ethical end of uh, sort of this New Testament and Christian goal? I mean, I think we all have to revisit that over and over again and everything that we interpret and do and say as, you know, the Word of God for the people of God. Yeah, yeah, and who are the people of God? Yeah, it's, it's the global world. I mean, it's this diaspora. global diaspora Christian identity. Yeah. Amen. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Shively. You've been listening to The Distillery. Interviews are conducted by me, Sherry Osting. I'm Garrett Mostowski, and I'm in charge of production. And I'm Christy Holly, and I'm the creative designer. Like what you're hearing? Let us know by rating us on iTunes. The Distillery podcast is part of The Thread, a production of Princeton Theological Seminary's Office of Continuing Education. You can find more episodes and other content at thethread.ptsem.edu. Thanks for listening.